And open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Tonight we look at verses 5 through 13. We finish the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus comes down off the mountain and runs into two individuals. Last week we talked about Jesus running into this leprous man and healing him of his leprosy. And tonight we see the second man that Jesus runs into coming down off the mountain into the town of Capernaum. A man who was known as a centurion, a Roman, a Roman guard. A leader over a hundred soldiers. Romans 8, Romans 8. Very good. Let's read it together. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and to that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Let's pray as we dive into God's word tonight. Father, we think of this man, this centurion. In whose faith Jesus marveled. And we ask you if we would be people that you would look at our faith and if you would marvel at our faith. We pray that we would be men and women whose faith amazes you and yet we admit that so often we don't think that would be the case. We trust in so many other things and we love our own authority and we love our own autonomy and we love being in charge and we get a little nervous with the idea of you being in charge. We pray that you would teach us what kind of faith you want us to have so that we might honor you and please you as your servants and as folks that you put on this earth to represent you and, and live at, with your authority on this planet. We pray that we would represent you well. We pray tonight for ourselves and our, our faith. We think back a few weeks ago when Jesus told us that some of us will stand before him as what we think are believers and, and here on the last day that we don't even know you and we pray that you would break our hearts now uh, so that we might be sure that we're in the faith, so that we might be men and women who can stand before you in confidence and in humility and know that we've truly trusted in you in the way that you've called us to do so. We pray this week for our junior high and high school students as they 
Start to engage even tonight with your word at Hume Lake. As those few hundred kids from our church and 800 kids from other churches all gather together and hear your word taught, your gospel preached, and your, your son glorified. We pray that, that many of these children will turn their hearts, their faces, their lives towards you. They would come back transformed and excited to be transforming agents in the culture in which you've put them in their schools and their families. We pray that that would be an amazing week. We pray for Charles and James as they lead those camps, that you would give them great conversations with those students. We pray for our volunteers up there, that you would just give them great conversations as they live out Deuteronomy 6 and get up and lie down and walk down the road and talk about spiritual things all day long. We pray that your, your law, your gospel, your word, your name would be on their lips and on their hearts and that you would break into their lives. Thank you for the opportunity you've given many of us to financially give towards those camps and we pray that, uh, that you would do a mighty work in the hearts of so many students and counselors and pastors and uh, everyone, bus drivers, we pray that you bring them home safe this evening. Thank you for so many folks who serve others in this community. We pray that we would be men and women who serve you, that we would primarily see ourselves as your servants and secondarily or tertiarily see ourselves as people with authority in this world, that we would really see our identity as folks who love you and serve you and are loved by you. That would come out in the way that we live and that you would mark us with humility so that you might marvel at our faith as we simply cling to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The last few weeks is we've been talking about Jesus coming down off of the mountain. That The last few words, the phrases, paragraphs of the Sermon on the Mount just keeps haunting me. Does it haunt you? Jesus gives this great sermon, three chapters, amazing sermon about the faith-filled life. And he ends it by saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, on that day. There will be men and women who stand before me, Jesus says, and say, Lord, Lord, did I not do many miracles in your name? Did I not cast out demons in your name? And Jesus says, I will tell you plainly, depart from me, you evildoers, for I never knew you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter my kingdom, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. And I don't know about you, but that terrifies me. As I like to think of myself as someone who does the will of my Father in heaven. I would love to stand before Christ someday and say, I did many miracles in your name. I haven't done any. I would love to stand before Jesus and say, didn't I cast out demons in your name? I've never done that. And yet Jesus says there will be people who can say those things that he will say, you're not coming into my kingdom because you and I don't know each other. And this beautiful sermon ends with this mix of terror as him and his disciples walk down the mountainside. And the first two people that the disciples and Jesus run into after that sermon are people who open their mouths and say to him, Lord, Lord. That's the first time that anyone's called Jesus Lord in the book of Matthew. Are these two people, right after he said, not everyone who says Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. He runs into two men who say, Lord, Lord. 
And we understand from these texts about these two men who call Jesus Lord that these are the kind of people that will enter the kingdom of heaven. And these aren't men who would say, I've cast out many miracles or cast out many demons. These aren't men who would say, I've done many miracles in your name. Both of these men, the leper last week, unclean man, comes before the Lord and says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. That's the end of his Lord, Lord sentence. And this week, a, a, a centurion comes to Jesus and says, Lord, Lord, not look at what I've done for you, Lord, but Lord, Lord, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. These two men come to Jesus and call him Lord, but don't follow it up with a list of achievements they've accomplished in their lives. They call him Lord and then follow it up with a request of helplessness and need. Lord, I need your help. These two men, Jesus looks upon with his favor. These two men, this centurion, Jesus, at the end of this passage, says that Jesus marveled. He was amazed at this man's faith. We can be confident that this centurion man who came before Jesus was not one who would say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus would cast him into hell. This is one who says, Lord, Lord, and Jesus says, truly I tell you, I have seen no greater faith in all of Israel than in this pagan Roman soldier. This centurion had a type of faith that Jesus liked. This was a man who would enter the kingdom of heaven. And so it's very good for us, it's important for us that we would understand what is it about this man's faith that pleases our Lord Jesus. What is it that makes this man more admirable than those who cast out demons and do many miracles? What is it that makes this man worthy, in a sense, of the amazement of our God in heaven? By all outer appearance, this would not be a man that would be marveled at by religious people. This, this man was a pagan. He was a centurion. In, in Roman-occupied Israel, there were posts where the Roman guards would rule and reign over these different cities. And a centurion was a man who was a commander over 100 soldiers. Centur- centurion, like century. 100 soldiers. So he was a man of stature, in a sense, within the Roman army. He had some wealth to his name, and yet he was outside of the kingdom of God through the minds of the Jewish people. He was not a Jewish man. He was a Roman man. He was not a religious man. He was a pagan man by nature. He was a Gentile. And these centurions, these Romans who lived in Israel, were generally hated by the people of God. This is not a man that if we looked at his life, we would say, he's an admirable follower of our Lord. Anyone who would look at this man, just not knowing him, would say, this man is not worthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's, he's unclean. The, the Romans were sexually permissive. The Romans, the centurions, were power mongers. They lorded authority over the people around them. This is not a man who's a good man. And yet this man comes to Jesus and he lays out a need to him. He says, Lord, asking for help, Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. 
There's been a little debate about who this servant was. The Greek word is pais, P-A-I-S, pais. It kind of means, best translation would be boy. Like my boy's at home. He's suffering, Lord. I need you to serve. I need you to heal my boy. But most people say, well, I don't think he's talking about his son because centurions weren't allowed to get married. Centurions, while they worked in the army, they had to be single men. And, and it was true in a Roman culture, a lot of these centurion men would have girlfriends, they'd have illegitimate children. And so maybe the centurion has, has fathered a child with his girlfriend. And now he's in humility coming to Jesus and saying, even though you're God, I slept with a woman. I've got a son and now he's sick. Will you please heal my son? That's, that's possible that he's coming to Christ and saying, my son, my boy, my boy is suffering. He's been paralyzed. I, I need your help. Swallowing his pride and coming to God with, with an issue like that, that's possible. Another possibility, this word pais, might mean that this was a young boy, a teenage boy, that he bought in slavery as his sexual companion. A lot of centurions, like I said, the Roman world was a pretty permissive world and a pagan world. And a lot of centurions would buy sex slaves in a sense. These young boys that would come into their house and they would serve in the household and they would be a sexual partner for these adult men. So a lot of centurions had paces, boys that lived with them and provided sexual gratification to them while they were unmarried and serving in the military. And so a lot of folks say, well, hey, maybe what happened is this man has a, a live-in boy, a, a sexual companion, and he's fallen ill and he loves this boy. It's like his partner is his, his man partner. And so he's coming to the Lord and saying, I'm swallowing his pride. I don't know what God will do, but I've got a, a man at home that I'm sleeping with and he's a young boy. Will you, will you heal him? And and we can see that Jesus would be a person who, who heals sinful people. And Jesus does that. He comes to prostitutes and they're in sin. Or he finds a woman who's been caught in adultery. Or someone who's sleeping with a guy who's not her husband. And she's had five husbands before. And he engages with these women who are in sexual sin. And, and he tells them, I, I, I want to heal you. I want to clean you. And he's not harsh with them. And so maybe that's what's happening here. I don't think that's what's happening here. Because Jesus is an amazingly gracious God and Messiah who deals nicely with people in sin. He says, go and sin no more. He heals them. But generally in the Gospels, the Jewish religious authority were not grace-filled men. Do you know that? Generally in the Gospels, Jesus was the one who poured out grace on sinners, but the religious leaders were the ones who snubbed and put their nose up at sinners. And in Luke's account of this story, the religious leaders come to Jesus first and they say, this centurion is coming to you with a request. Now please honor it because he's a worthy man. These Jewish religious leaders say, this centurion, he loves the nation of Israel. He built our synagogue. He is devoted to our cause. He's one of us even though he's a Gentile. So don't treat him like an unclean Gentile, Jesus. Treat him with respect and honor because this man is worthy. I don't think the Jewish religious leaders would say that about a man who's sleeping with a sex slave at his house, right? I don't think the Jewish leaders would say that about, about a man who fathered an illegitimate child. Jesus would have grace on a sinner. The religious leaders generally don't. And that's why in Luke's account, when he talks about this centurion coming to Jesus, the phrase he uses is not this Greek word, pace, but he uses a different word. He says, the slave, the servant, the doulos that was precious 
to this centurion had fallen ill. The reason that most people who struggle with this servant translation and saying this couldn't have just been a slave it had to be his son or his sexual companion the reason they say that is they say no 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 man in the first century would have any level of compassion or hurt for a servant who got sick the servants were like property they were like slaves. They were like cattle in the home. Um, a man would generally go down and purchase a slave, bring him to his house, and if he fell sick, it's like your horse falls sick. You shoot it, you buy a new horse, right? And the commentators say, no man would ever have compassion on a slave. He's property. And yet Luke is pointing out, and Matthew is pointing out, that something about this centurion was different. He had a, a person that he shouldn't have loved by culture's standards he had a slave in his home that he bought with his money and yet his heart was broken when this servant fell ill so the centurion is different he's not like everybody else he's not like the rest of the romans who were had these loose sexual morals he's not like the romans who would go and do whatever he's not like the normal jewish or roman person who'd have a servant in their house that they would treat like scum this was a man who had a boy in his house that was like a son to him even though it was his servant uh, most likely what happened was this man needed some help around the house and he went down and bought this servant from however they do that in the first century. This boy would come and live in his house and he would serve in the household of this centurion and what the centurion would give him would be discipleship. Not like Christian discipleship, but life skill stuff. Teach him to be a man. Teach him what it means to have leadership and authority. Teach him what it means to honor God if he was a godly man. Teach him what it means to go to synagogue. Teach him how to manage his money. And so this centurion did not treat this boy like a sex slave, like a lot of centurions did. This centurion did not treat this boy like property, like most people would. This centurion treated this servant like it was his own son. And since he couldn't get married while he was in the military, it was the only family this guy had. And like the Jewish religious leader said, this was an honorable man. He loved the Lord. He had great wealth and he devoted it to building a synagogue, a meeting place for God's people in Capernaum. He was a great man. His heart broke for someone in his household that most people wouldn't love, but he loved him like a child. And he came to Jesus, humbled himself and said, my servant that was precious to me, he, he fall, fell ill at home. He's paralyzed. He's suffering terribly probably one of the reasons that Jesus starts to marvel at this guy's faith who does that who who loves people that other people don't love what kind of person has compassion on on the people in society that most people just overlook and treat like property what kind of man is this what kind of man is this who's a pagan, but the religious Jewish people who hate pagans say, this man is honorable. What kind of man is this centurion? Centurion had the faith that Jesus loved. And at this point, we haven't even seen anything about this man's faith. We've just seen him with compassion coming to Jesus and saying, I need your help. Jesus tells the man, I, I will come to your home. He says, do you want me to come and heal him and, and walk to your house, walk over your threshold, approach this boy that you love like a child even though he's your servant and heal him? Do you want me to do that? Right? If Jesus said that to you, what would you say? 
I was like, yeah, that's what I was told. Come on, right? If Jesus approached you, which he won't do, but if Jesus approached you and said, I want to come to your house for dinner, what would you say? He'd say, clean the house. And then you go home, right? And you divide them on and you make them some beautiful deal. Jesus, it's such an honor you'd come to my house. Please come over. I'm so excited that you, there's so many things I want to talk to you about. Come over. I wanted to ask you all these questions. Please come to my house. This man doesn't say that. Jesus says, I want to come to your house. I want to heal your servant. And the man says, no, 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 no. I'm not worthy for you to step foot under my roof. I have to admit, if Jesus wanted to come to my house, I would never respond that way. I'd be honored. I'd be excited. I don't think I would say no. Jesus, I can't be near you. And this man understood that as a Gentile, Jesus would be made unclean as he came to his house. And so maybe that was part of it. He's saying, no, Jesus, please, that you're an amazing religious man. If you step into my house, you'll be defiled because I'm a pagan. Please, please just stay, stay away. This man had such humility that he approaches Christ and says, please don't come to my house. Even though you offered, I'm not worthy. It's funny, the Jewish religious leaders, they say, this man is worthy of your help. The only person who doesn't think that he's, this man is worthy of Jesus' help is this man. And he says, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. It takes a lot of faith. Have you ever had authority before, even a little authority? Like you worked at Taco Bell in high school and you got promoted to like assistant manager. There's something about authority that goes to our heads very quickly. Have you noticed that? Like if you're the assistant manager of Taco Bell, right, you were making burritos and now you got like three guys or girls who make burritos for you, you're telling everybody about that, right? Like, yeah, I'm kind of an assistant manager now. And they're like, you're assistant to the manager. Like, whatever, I'm assistant manager now. And <laughs> kind of brag about it, right? And you run into a CEO of a company and he's like, yeah, I've been running this company for 30 years. You're like, oh, I kind of understand where you're coming from because I'm an assistant manager at the Taco Bell now. And he's like, oh, that's nice, right? There's something about authority. We love to have authority. And when we have authority, we like to beat people over the head with our authority. We also like to brag about our authority. And when this centurion meets Jesus, Jesus is of great religious authority. And this man is of great military authority. And yet this man, when Jesus is encountering him, does not identify as a man who has great authority. Look at what this man says. When Jesus says, shall I come and heal him, the centurion said, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed, for I myself am a man under authority. Normally, when we get some authority, we stop identifying as people under authority, and we start identifying as people with authority, don't we? If you become a manager, all of a sudden you think, hey, I don't have to do what anyone says anymore. Now I'm the one in charge. This man had a hundred guys at his disposal he could deploy as troops. And instead of saying, Jesus, you're a man of authority, so am I. I get how it works. Just tell this demon or tell this sickness to leave my boy. He doesn't say that. He says, Jesus, you have authority and I know about authority because I'm under it. Rome is my authority, and Caesar's my authority, and my boss, and those three guys, and those six people, and those 12 people, and those 50 people are over me, Jesus. I am under authority. 
There's something about this guy that's so humble that even though everyone around looks at him as a big deal, his primary identification is as someone who serves higher authority. And he recognizes, Jesus, I serve higher authorities in the military, and, and yet he's falling before Jesus, recognizing Jesus is the higher authority above all higher authorities. He says, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. Lord, just say the word and my servant will be healed. You are the higher authority. And Jesus, I understand authority because I am a man who is under authority and I also have soldiers under me. Jesus, I get authority because I serve under higher powers and I've been entrusted with this leadership over these 100 guys. This guy has a perspective about leadership and authority that is so humble and admirable that when he comes to Jesus, he doesn't come to Jesus demanding. He doesn't come to Jesus even asking. He comes to Jesus deferring and saying, Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. He doesn't even ask for help. He just lays out his case like he's talking to Nero or Caesar or something. Jesus says, shall I come and heal him? He says, no, please, you can't, can't even come to my house. I understand authority. I'm under authority, and I have a little bit of authority myself. I, I tell people to come, and they come. I tell them to go, and I tell them to go. I tell my servant to do something, and he does it. I understand the nature of authority, and now I'm looking at you, the supreme authority, and you can just say a word. And this guy will be healed. Jesus, I know that authority doesn't have to go to someone to make something happen. You just speak it into existence. He understands that in the military, the chain of command. But he looks at Jesus and he says, you are one who can speak wellness into existence. You are one who can speak demons out of people. You are one that if someone is a leper, you can speak healing with your mouth. Jesus, you're one that if you so will it, you have the authority that when you open your mouth, that my boy will be healed of his paralysis, his suffering, and his terror. Jesus, just say the word. Just say it. You don't have to go anywhere. Just say it because you have that kind of power. I don't know how conscious he was of who Jesus really was, but we know that his identification of Christ was accurate. That Jesus is the one who spoke the heavens into place. That Jesus is the word of God who put on flesh, who dwelt among us. That Jesus scattered stars. That Jesus spoke and the world emerged. He spoke and his breath brought life into our bodies. That he speaks and our spiritual lives emerge and we have new birth. That Jesus' word is powerful. This centurion, he knew it. He knew, I don't know how he knew it, but he knew it. That Jesus could open his mouth and miracles could happen. And so we bowed down before him and said, just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, <laughs> wow. And Jesus was amazed. And he said to those following him, truly I tell you, I haven't found anyone in Israel with such great faith. This man's a pagan. He's a Gentile. He's from an unclean people. He's from a regime that persecutes the people of God. And yet he's been humbly walking with the Lord, using his funds to build a synagogue that he can't enter as a Gentile. Spending his life loving Israel, even though he's unclean to them and apart from them, even though he's not part of the kingdom on this earth, 
He sees the Messiah of the Jews, and he knows that he is the God that spoke the universe into existence, his only hope for help. And he came to Jesus and said, just say a word, and my servant will be healed. A servant that most people wouldn't care about, but his heart broke because he treated his servant not like an object, not like a sexual toy, but like his own son. Who is this guy? I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. And then Jesus reiterates the sentiment that we heard at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, I tell you the truth. He says, people from the east and the west, from the nations, from the Gentile nations, they're going to come and they're going to sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. Us, us Gentiles. But some of the sons of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but this guy will, because he gets it. You know the biggest difference between those who stand before Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount and say, Lord, Lord, and this guy and the leprous guy who say, Lord, Lord, humility. And the people at the end of the Sermon on the Mount say, Jesus, Lord, Lord, look at all the things I did for you. And this guy and the leprous man come before Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, I'm not even worthy to have you in my house. I need you. I have nothing to offer you. I'm I'm far from you, and yet you have all the hope I need. I, I need you, but I'm not worthy to be in your presence. It's an attitude difference. This man was remarkable. His faith was remarkable. His faith was amazing because he didn't even know he had it. He looked at Jesus as the one with the authority. He looked at Jesus as the one who can do things. He didn't think he could do anything. The whole world thought this guy was amazing, but he had no idea. He was truly humble in his soul. All he knew was that Jesus was what he needed, and he was unworthy to receive anything from the Lord. I think of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah stands in the presence of God. And the moment Isaiah realizes where he is, he, he repents, right? Uh, Lord, I am unclean. I am from a people of unclean lips, God. I, I am not worthy to be in your presence. And, and this centurion looked a lot like that. He falls in the, in the Lord's presence and he feels unworthy to be there. The difference between this guy and the folks at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is they think they're entitled to be in the presence of Jesus. And this man feels that he should be removed from the presence immediately. Because you know he knows who Jesus really is. And when he comes to Jesus in his humility, in his brokenness, in his need, with his compassionate request, he finds, he encounters that Jesus is willing to do all that this man needs. In his brokenness, he finds Christ, and Christ knows him. And when this man stands in front of Jesus, when he died, Jesus didn't say, who's this guy? Right? So I remember you. Your faith was amazing. You were humble. You knew you needed him. And when you go into the presence of God, what, what does it look like for you? Do you feel unworthy? Do you feel broken? Do you feel lucky you're alive and, and praying to him? Do you have to tell yourself, no, it's okay, I can come to Jesus because his death 
gives me life. His resurrection gives me life. His death forgives my sins. And so I, I'm not going to die if I pray to Jesus. He's going to look favorably upon me, and he loves me. You have to tell yourself that, no, 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 it's okay to pray to Jesus. You don't have to be scared because even though he is holy and big and should never listen to people like us, he chooses to because he loves us and he has compassion. And we learn that over time as we walk in humility before him and we find his favor and then we come back again and we realize that he's still big and we're still small but he loves us and he chooses to listen to us and he forgives us again and again and and there's humility there is that how you approach jesus do you find yourself lifting off to god all the great things you've done for him why he's obligated to answer your prayers think about standing before him someday and you rehearse the list of god i if you're not thinking about letting me into heaven, let me tell you all the reasons you should. Right? I went to church, and I did this, I did that, I did this, I did this. You're preparing this laundry list of, God, I did these great things for you, so I deserve to enter your kingdom. And if that's you, he will look at you and say, depart from me. Who are you? I don't know you. Don't rehearse a speech. Fall before him today and say, Jesus, I, I need you. I'm not worthy to be in your presence, and yet you've asked me into it. You provided a way, your death provides a way for me to enter into the presence of God so I can approach the throne of grace with confidence, right? Not strutting in like a peacock or whatever, with confidence that you're not scared you're going to die when you pray because though he's holy and should kill you, he won't. Because he loves you, because he's paid for your sin, because he's provided a way for you to enter into his throne room. If you want to see what it looks like for a Christian to stand in the throne room of God, read Revelation and see what the Apostle John experienced in the throne room. It's crazy, scary, big, holy, weighty stuff. And Jesus says, those who know me, even when I'm walking around on this earth like a man, because he was a man, this centurion knew that that's the guy he's talking to. A guy that's not even... It's too big, too great, too amazing to even step foot in his house. A guy that he's not even willing to ask a question to, but just says, this is my need. And, and though everyone else in the world looked at the centurion and said, this man is amazing, the centurion said, no, not me. I'm nothing. It's only by the grace of God that I'm here and can have this conversation. And Jesus looked at the man and said, ah, that faith amazes me. It amazes me. I've never seen faith greater than that. In all of the country of Israel, this man who had a recognition of who Jesus was, his identity, who Jesus was in his authority, and who he was in his humility, caused the king of the universe to be amazed at the work that was happening within him. Tonight, if you're a believer in Jesus, communion is an opportunity for you to approach God like that. To recognize that the only reason you'll stand in his presence someday, if you stand in his presence someday, and don't fall in his presence someday, is because his death gives you life. Because his death on the cross pays for your sins, and his resurrection breathes spiritual life into you, and will breathe physical life into you for all eternity. And so today we come and we take this bread, and we remember that this is the body of Jesus, which is for us. We dip it in this juice, and, and in this cup, we remember that the blood of Jesus was poured out as the new covenant in his blood, and we eat it, and we drink it, and we remember what he did, the gravity, 
that he would die so that we might be worthy to enter into his presence. And the same reverence you bring into this communion meal where you remember and you proclaim that the only reason you have life is because of his death is the reverence that you should bring into your life when you walk with him. When you pray, it should have the same reverence as this communion meal. When you talk about spiritual things, it should have the same weightiness as this communion meal. When when you think about the Lord, it should be the same weightiness as this communion meal because the God of the universe is big and holy and beautiful, and yet he's chosen to show love to us and provide a way for us to stand and not fall in his presence. So tonight, if you are a believer in Jesus, this table is for you. It's a time to come and remember and celebrate the death of Christ. It's not a boring thing. It's not a sad thing. It's an exciting thing, but it's a weighty thing. And tonight, if you're not a believer, stay back from this communion and ask God to show you who Jesus is. Ask God to impress on your heart the weightiness of his reality so that someday when you stand before him, you won't have a laundry list of great things you've done. You'll be able to stand and have him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not leader, servant. You recognized my authority. And even though you may have had some earthly authority, you primarily viewed yourself as a servant because you're my servant and I'm your king. Let's pray and then let's receive communion together. Father, we pray that as we walk away from this room, we would identify primarily as men and women who are under authority. We don't have authority, even if we have authority in this world, in the marketplace, in our families, in the church, anywhere else. We we are primarily under your authority, and you've given us a stewardship to manage some things on this planet. Let us do that with the same respect and honor and weightiness that this centurion brought through your son Jesus. As we take this uh, communion elements into our hands and we receive them and eat of them, we pray that you would remind us that we have life because your son died on the cross. And no one took his life. He gave up his life. He put on flesh. He dwelt among us. He was God and man and then chose to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And then he rose to life, ascended to his heavenly throne and began to rule and reign over all the earth. He said, look at me, believe in me, trust in me and you will have life. Let us receive these communion elements like servants, humble servants tonight that have this food that our king has provided for us so that we might live and not die. That he nourishes us, not our refrigerators, not our paychecks, not our bank accounts, but you sustain us. You are our king. Let us walk in the weightiness of your holiness as we live our lives and recognize that your word speaks existence into place. Your word speaks life into our dead bodies. Your word spoke our souls to life. Let those words, those commands of yours be with us as we walk with you on this earth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.